Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we're going to start with a riddle. A father and son get in a severe car accident and both are badly hurt. An ambulance arrives and takes them to separate hospitals. When the boy is taken in for emergency surgery, the surgeon says, I can't operate on him because this boy is my son. How is this possible? The answer is the surgeon is the boy's mother. Had you heard that riddle before? I remember hearing it as a kid, and my mind was blown when I heard the punchline. And the fact that that joke is still in circulation and that it still flummoxes people is a commentary on how we view or don't view women in positions of power in our society. Our author today is famed Cambridge University professor Mary Beard. And in her book, Women and Power, a Manifesto, She writes that despite the fact that there are more women in leadership positions than there used to be, quote, our mental cultural template for a powerful person remains resolutely male. If we close our eyes and try to conjure up the image of a president or to move into the knowledge economy, a professor, what most of us see is not a woman. And that is just as true even if you are a woman professor. The cultural stereotype is so strong that at the level of those close-your-eyes fantasies, it is still hard for me to imagine me or someone like me in my role. End quote. So we are going to discuss Women in Power, a Manifesto today, and I am so excited to dig into this amazing book. But before we begin, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Louisa Gillette. Welcome, Louisa. Thank you. I'm so happy and excited to be here. I'm so happy and excited to have you here. Uh, Our next step before we dive into the text is to introduce the author. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, Mary Beard. (laughs) So um, Mary Beard, Dame Mary Beard, Professor Dame Mary Beard, also has lots of letters after her name. Uh, Mm -hmm. I checked my app. She is Dame Mary Beard, D-B-E-F-S-A-F-B-A-F-R-S-L. And letters after your name are also a a sign that you've really made it in England in an intellectual sense. Uh, And I'm going to try and keep calling her Professor Beard. It's very tempting to call her Mary because I think that's what we often do with women. We kind of go, oh, Mary. Mm. Um, And we do it less with men. They tend to get uh, their family name. Um, And she's a professor. and I'm going to try and stick with that. She is a professor of classics at Cambridge University. She was born in England in 1955 and her father was an architect and her mother was a headmistress, which is actually, you know, it's quite a powerful position in its own way. But even so, Beard has talked about, and in the book we're looking at today, she's written about the fact that her mum always regretted not being able to go to university and about how frustrated she would get that her views and her voice were not necessarily being taken as seriously as she hoped they would be or thought they should be. Um, And that was a real sadness in her life. And I think um, Professor Beard's professional success um, brought her a lot of joy, that sense of Uh, We stand on the shoulders of those who came before and each generation can advance a bit further. Um, And as well as being a very distinguished professor of classics, Professor Beard has written several books on classical matters. uh, And she's also presented lots of TV and radio programs in England. So she's really quite a popular cultural figure. Most of them have been on Greece and Rome, which is her expertise, but some of them on contemporary culture. She presents quite a cool late night show at the moment on contemporary culture. And she's received a lot of affection 
for her popularization of history and classics, um, which is shown by the fact lots of people watch her programs. But she's also one of the most high-profile women I can think of, certainly in the, in the academic world, there are female politicians who've had to deal with similar things. She's also received this unbelievable amount of abuse uh, on social media, but also actually in print media, you know, national newspapers, uh, mainstream media, a lot of it from men, most of most of this abuse. I mean, criticism, criticism of ideas that can come from anywhere. Most of the abuse has come from men who are criticising her for being too old and too unattractive to be in public. <laughs> when I say mm. it, I... I, I kind of can't quite believe the words that come out of my mouth because it just sounds ridiculous. Mm. But actually, that's the reality she's been living in for at least the last 15 years or so. And often this abuse is quite directly about the fact she's a woman in middle age who isn't being quiet or staying in the background. Lots of tweets branding her a witch, um, tweets threatening her with sexual assault. Um, you know, in her own words, she said she looks like an ordinary woman of her age. And I think she might be like, well, not necessarily doing her, herself a disservice. I mean, she does. I think she looks really nice. She, she's got mm-hmm. grey hair and she's not a size eight anymore mm-hmm. if she ever was. But, you know, she's mm-hmm. a completely normal human being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but back in 2012, when she was in her mid-50s, the most famous and powerful TV critic in England. And again, you just got to remember, England is a small island. It punched above its weight for a long time politically, but it's really quite a small place. So this this guy, A.A. Gill, he was really powerful, really influential. And he laid into her for her hair and her teeth and her clothes Mm. when she presented a series. And he actually wrote, quote, too ugly for television. Mm. End quote. Wow. Um, And despite the fact she's a professor at Cambridge University and she's won academic prizes and she's a dame, given that position by the Queen, a lot of the abuse also dismisses her ideas, not on the basis of evidence or on alternative opinion about those ideas, but on the grounds that she's stupid. You know, she's stupid, which she demonstrably isn't. I think there are many things you could say about Professor Beard, but stupid just isn't really rationally one of them. Um, And one of the things I find interesting about her take on the classics is her belief that ancient sources, that they have to be understood as as documentation for the attitudes and the context of their author and the times in which they were written. And that doesn't actually sound particularly revolutionary, but actually the long history of, of classical study hasn't often seen things that way. And it makes the book we're looking at today really interesting because she takes all this amazing knowledge she has about the classical world and she really casts a critical eye over the beliefs that you can see in these venerated texts. Uh, and she looks at the beliefs that you can find in them. Uh, you don't have to you don't have to look very hard to find them about how women should be excluded from power, um, about how women in power are monstrous, unnatural, um, and about how these beliefs of this world, which seems it seems so far away, doesn't it? These statues with limbs missing in museums, these beautiful statues and beautiful poems from a long time ago. But these beliefs from this ancient world are still are still being used to normalise gendered violence and they're, they're still part of this cultural water that these women 
And she argues, and this is a quote, we don't have model or template for what a powerful woman looks like. We only have templates that make them men, uh, end quote. And that really resonated for me because that, you know, that was the experience I had in my own really small way when I was at university going, well, if I'm going to if I'm going to do this right, I'm going to have to write like a man. And it, it is the experience I found as a, as a professional woman looking at the role models and seeing how many of them were like, well, to get what I want, I'm going to do it as a man. And just at this point in my life thinking, I think there might be another way. I think we mm. should try and find another way. Well, thanks for that. That's a fantastic introduction um, of Professor Beard. So we'll dive into the text now. The The book is quite, it's quite a slim little volume. You can read it in a day and it's divided into four parts. So the first part is a preface uh, and then a lecture that Professor Beard gave in 2014, which is called The Public Voice of Women, and then a separate lecture that she gave in 2017 called Women in Power. And then there's a short afterward. And so we're going to be taking turns sharing passages that impacted us the most kind of thematically. So we'll we'll take turns saying this is a theme that we noticed from that we've drawn from these essays in this little uh, compilation of two speeches in the in the forward and af- afterwards. So Louisa, if you can start us off with one of the themes that you found the most um, striking to you. For sure. So um she uses a parody uh, in an old punch cartoon by an artist called Rihanna Duncan, which shows five men and one woman, and they're all sitting around a formal meeting room. And uh, the woman has a, a, a look of bewilderment on her face and dismay. Uh, um, and the, the men all look quite happy with the world. And it, it looks like the chairman's mouth is open, so he's probably talking. And in the caption, the chairman is saying, that's an excellent suggestion, Miss Triggs. Perhaps one of the men here would like to make it. Um, <laughs> I, I, my, my, I was like, wow, because I have that postcard. I have that, that picture. I actually ordered a copy of it when, I, when mm. I first saw it because it resonated so strongly with me. I, I have been that woman in a meeting room or watched other women being that woman in a meeting room thinking, oh, hang on. I just, mm-hmm. I just said that. But mm-hmm. were, no one paid any attention. Now he's said exactly the same thing, and everyone thinks it's great. What mm-hmm. am I? You, know, you sort of think, can I check my own volume control? You know, did, did, <laughs> I, did, 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 did what, what just happened there? Um, and and she uses it as a kind of uh, as an opener, as a, a way of, of getting into these issues. And as she says, uh, "quote There is hardly a woman who has opened her mouth at a meeting and not had at some time or other the Miss Triggs treatment." Um, and that really kind of pulled me up because I did, it did happen to me and I did see it happen to other women, but I hadn't really kind of extended it to the idea that it was happening in other meeting rooms all over the place. Mm. It's like, oh yeah, this is, this is a thing. What Professor Beard does in this book is, is to give you a long view of women being told overtly or covertly, um, to shut up. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to be heard in in public, not not to speak, and and she because she's a classicist, she's she's got all the tools at her fingertips. So she covers as a fourth century comedy by Aristophanes, um, which mocks the hilarious idea that women might take over running the state. Apparently, that's just like a huge joke that idea. Mm. 
Um, she looks at Ovid's Metamorphosis, which repeatedly has this idea of silencing women in the process of transformation. So one of them, Io, is turned into a cow, so she's only able to moo. Uh, Philomela is raped and then has her tongue cut out by the rapist to prevent her from speaking out. And these texts are so often looked at in in other terms. They're looked at for the beauty of the language or the impact of the themes. And it really, it was really like a kind of still moment for me to go, oh, oh yes, there's all that stuff too. There's beautiful language and beautiful writing, but there's there's this as well. Mm -hmm. I had the same um, response reading those, that a, a lot of these stories, most of them I was familiar with and seeing them anew through a lens of like how they kind of form archetypes and and that's what myths do right they're stories through which we understand ourselves and the world yes um so one of the things that professor beard then goes on to look at is well okay if if there are all these situations in which women can't speak mustn't speak are punished for speaking when can they speak (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when do women get to speak publicly? Uh, and it, this is not a depressing book. It's a really interesting read. And Amy, as you mm-hmm. said earlier, it's quite a quick read as well because it's based on some lectures. Um, but but this part of the book did make, you know, when she, she pulls it out, when can women speak publicly? And the answer is, <laughs> there's a few times in the ancient world uh, when they can speak publicly. Um, so when they're victims or martyrs, usually as a preface to their death, just before before they die, often horribly, uh, they get to say they get to say their piece. Um, so they get to do that. They get to Perfect. defend their homes, their children, their husbands, or the interests of other women. Uh, and the conclusion she draws from this is, um, I'm going to quote it: "Women, in other words, may in extreme circumstances publicly defend their own sectional interests." but not speak for men or the community as a whole. <laughs> uh, and she, she pulls, uh, Professor Beard pulls this through into our world with examples like Emmeline Pankhurst, who was a famous British suffragette, or Sojourner Truth, um, the ex-slave uh, who, uh, whose Ain't I a Woman speech is uh, quite famous and often published in anthologies of speeches. Uh, and the fact is, often in these anthologies of great speeches, the ones which come from women are the one and are regarded as great speeches are the ones in which women are talking about the difficulty of being a woman um, or the needs that women have or maybe that children have. And, and Professor Beard has this phrase which she uses, which makes me feel really uncomfortable, but I think it's, it's an important one. And, and she talks about how they're allowed the speeches where they, quote, parade their victimhood end of quote. Um, And there's a lot of hard things bound up in that phrase for me because, you know, a victim should never be muted as we've been talking about. It's really important to be able to speak, not be silenced from what's happened to you. But at the same time, if that's all that you're allowed to speak about, if that's the only time you're allowed to speak, there's a real deep ugliness in, in that, in this appetite we have to hear from women when they talk about their suffering and when they when they sound like the way that we think women 
are supposed to sound, which is to talk about their victimhood. Hmm. But not, like you said, to talk about economic policy or to talk about the larger issues in the world that um, have, you know, that are important to men and women and, and all human beings, right? So, and that leads perfectly, I think, into the next topic that we were going to discuss, which is what's wrong with women's speech? Why aren't women um, allowed to or encouraged to speak? So I'm going to start this section just with a quote from Professor Beard. She says, quote, we find repeated stress throughout ancient literature on the authority of the deep male voice in contrast to the female. As one ancient scientific treatise explicitly put it, a low-pitched voice indicated manly courage, a high-pitched voice, female cowardice. Other classical writers insisted that the tone and timbre of women's speech always threatened to subvert not just the voice of the male orator, but also with social and political instability, the health of the whole state. Yeah, End quote. absolutely. I mean... That, that, I mean, it's still the water we're swimming in. So women, you know, in public are still being labelled as strident or whiners or shrill. Uh, and and she, she pulls out this. She says, labels like whiner really matter because, I'm going to, this is a quote from the book, they underpin an idiom that acts to remove your authority, the force, even the humour from what women have to say. It is an idiom that effectively repositions women back into the domestic sphere. People whinge over things like the washing up. It trivialises their words or it reprivatizes them. Contrast the deep-voiced man with all the connotations of profundity that the simple word deep brings it. It is still the case that when listeners hear a female voice, they do not hear a voice that connotes authority, or rather, they have not learned how to hear authority in it. And it's not just voice. You can add in craggy or wrinkled faces that signal mature wisdom in the case of a bloke, but past my use-by date in the case of a woman. <laughs> so well put. Uh, that that part made me laugh. But I was also really struck by that that phrase where she said that when listeners hear a female voice, they do not hear a voice that connotes authority, or rather they have not learned how to hear authority in it. I thought that was so true. So whatever voice you use as a woman, is it seems to be a problem. But whatever voice you do use, uh, Beard does, uh, goes on to look at what happens when you use it and you stray into traditional male discursive territory. So not talking about your own sexual assault or children's rights or all the, the things which are really important but are seen as the appropriate domain of women. What happens if you stray into talking about stuff that is thought of as the domain of men. Uh, and she identifies three things. Uh, the first thing that can happen is you get dismissed as stupid, which has happened to Professor Beard quite a lot herself. Um, and she says, I've lost count of the number of times I've been called an ignorant moron. Wow. You know, she's, <laughs> she's a very clever woman. You could probably say lots of things about her ideas about the ancient world, but um, the idea that she's an ignorant moron is not one of them. Mm. Uh, the second thing um, she identifies is that you get threatened with forcible silencing, and that really speaks to this issue of trolling and trying to silence women who speak in the public sphere on social media. Yep. So the third thing um, that she says happens, or she notes happens, when a woman strays into like traditional 
male appropriate territory speaking is that they get silenced um, either because it's just everyone goes, well, it's more convenient if you're silent or it's for their own good. She cites the example of how in the Afghan parliament, they actually just unplug the microphones when we don't want to hear the women speak. Um, And in general, in her experience, her personal experience and in her observation experience, women are frequently told to be silent in the face of abuse. Don't call the abusers out. Don't give them any attention. Just keep mum and block them, she says, is what she's been told. And you just think, wow, people are tweeting her, comparing her genitals to rotting vegetables um, and saying they want to cut her head off and rape her. And and the response is somehow, well, just keep your head down and, and don't give them any attention. And that's a, that actually is a perfect segue into the next point that we wanted to highlight, which was the question, you know, what, what can we do about it? What can we do to bring about change? And Professor Beard had some ideas about that. We loved this, this passage that Professor Beard writes. She says, quote, We should perhaps try to bring to the surface the kinds of questions we tend to shelve about how we speak in public, why and whose voice fits. What we need is some old-fashioned consciousness raising about what we mean by the voice of authority and how we've come to construct it, end quote. And, and mm-hmm. Professor Beard does a, is a good segue because Professor Beard does a good job of, of asking that question. You know, how do we recognize female power when we see it? Um, and her kind of follow-up is, well, do we even recognize female power? And she asks about the conventional definitions of power or knowledge or expertise or authority. What are those images of those things we carry around in our heads? And she has this hunch that they exclude women. And so she does this really fun experiment where she Googles for cartoon images of professors. And professor has a slightly different meaning in England to what it does in America. So she she Googles English professors. Mm. Uh, and what she found, and and it would have been great if it had been to her surprise, but it actually totally wasn't to her surprise, uh, was that endless images of men came back in the search. And out of the first hundred images she found when she Googled for a UK professor, only one was female. Um, mm-hmm. These are cartoon images. And the female professor that did come up was a Pokemon character. <laughs> and it, it didn't surprise her because even though mm-hmm. she is a professor, a professor at Cambridge of classics, um, she knew that, that she was familiar with that kind of preconception. She mm-hmm. kind of had the same sort of feeling herself. It's just not the image of a professor uh, that we have. And this idea of of a lack of a template for powerful women that that we can we have that we hold in our cultural rolodex in the stereotypes the archetypes we have in our minds um i think it's one of the most powerful th- things for me that she looks at in in the book she says we have no template for what a powerful woman looks like except that she looks rather like a man. The regulation trouser suits, or at least the trousers worn by so many Western female political leaders from Angela Merkel to Hillary Clinton, may be convenient and practical. They may be a signal of the refusal to become a clothes horse, which is a fate of so many polit- political wives. But they are also a simple tactic, like lowering the timbre of the voice, to 
to make the female appear more male, to fit the part of power. Women in power are seen as breaking down barriers or alternatively as taking something to which they are not quite entitled. And she does a brilliant job of showing you what this looks like in the ancient world with uh, the myth of Medusa, who in at least one version of a story was a beautiful woman raped by Poseidon in a temple of Athena. And then as a punishment to her, who had been raped, she was transformed into a monstrous creature with this deadly capacity to turn anyone who looked at her face to stone. And in the end, the hero Perseus kills her he cuts her head off using his shiny shield as a mirror so he doesn't have to look directly at her. Uh, and as Professor Beard says, the head of Medusa was one of the most potent ancient symbols of male mastery over the destructive powers of the very possibility of female power. The destructive powers of the very possibility of female power. And this is one of those places where you sort of think, yeah, that's amazing, Professor Beard. Mm -hmm. Wow, I'd never seen that in classical literature. And then she mm -hmm. goes on to show you how it is relevant to today. And she shows you how um, a version of this myth, which was painted by Caravaggio in 1598, it's very famous. I think there's going to be a picture of it on the website that you can go and check yes. out. You'll, you'll know it when you see it. Um, right. This image of, of this woman with this snaky locks and her head's been cut off. So it's just the head with the snaky locks recurs over and over and over again, right up until the present day, as a symbol of opposition to women in power. So Angela Merkel's faces have been superimposed on this painting over and over again. Hillary Clinton with Trump's face superimposed on the body of Perseus and Hillary's face super, superimposed on the face of the Medusa. Uh, it made it into T-shirts, into tank tops, into coffee mugs, tote bags. It, there it is. It's the ancient world and it's embedded right in our own. And it insists that women must be excluded from power because they're really dangerous. And a woman in power is a monster and you have to defeat her even if she tries to take part. It's really, go to the website and check it out. Mm -hmm. it, it really, I saw something which I'd never seen as clearly before when I saw those images. Yeah. So Professor Beard develops this idea more about th that we do need more women in politics. And, and she talks about how um, it's really important and great to have, you know, more focus on quote unquote women's issues, right? Like childcare and equal pay. But then the question is that we've asked on lots of episodes before this too, like <laughs> the next step is to not consider these women's issues, but rather human issues, right? Because these are issues that impact everyone. This is how, this is how human life continues right through families and that at, that fathers should be equally interested in these ideas. It's not just for women. So she says, quote, the reasons and she meaning the reasons for women to be in politics, the reasons are much more basic. It is flagrantly unjust to keep women out by whatever unconscious means we do so. And we simply cannot afford to do without women's expertise, whether it is in technology, the economy or social care. If that means fewer men get into the legislature, as it must do, social change always has its losers as well as winners. I'm happy to look those men in the eye. End quote. 
Uh, <laughs> so I love that. Part, that. I love that phrase. <laughs> it's tricky for me, but and and I still want to maintain my love and my compassion and my em- empathy for individual men. And I don't want it to be a zero sum game, but I I'm actually thankful for Mary Beard. And just her strength in saying, I'm happy to look those men in the eye and to say, you know, systemically, things aren't right. And it is going to require that men do give some things up in order to make it a more just society and and that we can stand tall and say, yep, this needs to change. Thank you. And and not be so apologetic as I as I perhaps tend to be. I love all of that, Amy. You know, I think all of that's so important. I don't see this as some, I personally don't see this as some kind of battle in which we got to win. I see it as a rebalancing. But, you know, at the same time, she doesn't say I'm happy for those men to lose out. She says, I'm happy to look those men in the eye. And and I think that speaks to just a, a conception of we need to move towards something which is more just. Mm-hmm. and more fair this is not a it's not a battle of of dominance it, it it's a values based thing and i also personally i really truly believe that society benefits from that plurality of perspective and voice in policy making beautiful well thank you louisa this actually brings us to the end of the program today so I, I want to thank you again, Louisa. This was just really a powerful, it was a powerful book and it was just um, a lovely conversation. I learned so much from you and I'm so, so grateful to have you join well, me today. Thanks for being so here. so much from you. Thank you so much, Amy, for inviting me. 